FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 459 of the podcast to go snicked. Snicked, I'm your host, Jason Jambalaya without the spice, Venable, and it's time for a flashback episode, a special Gambit's Gumbo of Blood Ties, the 1993 celebration of 30 years of Avengers and X-Men together. They've been together for 30 years. At least they've been in the same publishing company. <laughs> 30 years. Not, I mean, I will say, so going back and reading all of the 60s and the 70s stuff up through uh, early 76, they have crossed over more times than I thought. Because in the 80s, they kind of don't really meet that often. And I'm not going to say it was like a lot. They weren't like together all the time, but... I mean, there were more stories together than, than I would have had the impression of reading the comics when I grew up. But, you know, that's it. Obviously, uh, Blood Ties is kind of the, you know, we had uh, Fatal Attractions, which we did a fantastic episode. And thanks again to John, Grant, Al, and Cameron for coming on, um, for making that episode super special. Uh, we did for our ninth anniversary, which celebrated 30 years of X-Men. And, you know... The Avengers, if you follow my Twitter, I've, I've been tweeting along, uh, kind of had several stories back-to-back to celebrate their 30th anniversary. Um, and this is kind of the cap on that. And as the cap, it kind of celebrates both teams together. Now, I don't know how much time I'll spend on this. I'll just kind of go with the flow. But Wolverine's not in it, though they do talk about him a little bit, because uh, he has just left the X-Men at the end of... Wolverine 75, like we talked about on the Fatal Attractions episode, and will be absent from the book for a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of cool. You know, we're in the, the heyday of kind of Wolverine oversaturation. So I remember when the Wolverine miniseries came out, and, you know, Wolverine went to Madripoor and did all this stuff that he did in, in a couple of different situations. You know, Claremont did excuse him from Uncanny X Men. Like, he just kind of was gone for a little bit. And then in the early 90s, you know, he's kind of all over the place and you don't really see that. And obviously nowadays, hell, even when he was dead for several years, there were still kind of random appearances or, if nothing else, flashbacks. But, you know, kudos to them because when Wolverine bows out after he loses his adamantium, he, he is absent, not for a long time, but he, you know, he is absent from the X-Books for, you know, at least a few months. And even then, then he kind of pops in and out in some different ways that we'll talk to when we get to him. Um, but anyway, he's not in this event at all. And Gambit is in it. He doesn't have, I would say, a whole lot. Well, I mean, I guess he has as much to do as really any of the X-Men. I mean, he definitely gets some lines and gets some action. So... I don't know if he's, like, crucial to the story, because if you know the story at all, it really centers around kind of the fallout of Fatal Attraction and how that impacts his descendants. And we'll kind of get into that. It's kind of... It's almost really a Magneto legacy story, right? Um, After Xavier wipes his mind completely away, kind of what's left to happen after that. And 
which is interesting because we had, you know, Wolverine 75 and then Excalibur 71, kind of the last two parts of Fatal Attractions were both post-climax, uh, were both kind of epilogue, and this is kind of another bigger, <laughs> further reaching uh, epilogue. Um, so definitely excited to get into it. Um, I had not, it's a little history, you know, we're in kind of that era that is at the tail end of my comic book collecting the first time around. Um, I had not ever, before this, getting ready for this podcast, read all of Blood Ties. I had read the two X-Men chapters, and X-Men and Uncanny, and that's all. Um, obviously, <laughs> you know, so it's funny, and I think I talked about this a little bit on a, on a previous episode, but, um, my memory of it was super spotty, but I, I think that's just because I didn't really ever read all of it, and I'm kind of, I mean, you can kind of put together what's going on, the general gist, just from the X-Men uh, issues, but, you know, I don't know, and we're talking about specifically Uncanny issue, because um, I think I have some specific feelings about how I read that as a kid, um, that would probably help, you know, contextualize uh, some of my decision-making about comics at the time, um, or, you know, about how I feel about certain things or felt and how those feelings have or haven't changed. So, anyway, we're going we're gonna to have some Gambit gumbo. We're going to talk about Gambit as he goes through this event um, that begins in Avengers 368. So that's where we're going to start. So this is Blood Ties, part one of five. And it is, if I can find the actual title page, Family Legacy, written by Bob Harris, penciled by Steve Epting, inked and colored by Tom Palmer. I forgot that he also did color sometimes. Uh, letters by Bill Oakley, and then, of course, edited by Ralph Macchio and Tom DeFalco. And with a special thanks to X-Men writers Scott Lumdell and Fabian Nicieza. So I guess, you know, they helped kind of chart the course of the event, and then the Avengers writers, um, you know, got to fill in the details, fill in the deets. Um, on the cover is by Steve Epting and Tom Palmer. And it's kind of a team shot, but it's a, it's a mix of the teams. So we have up front in his 90s, uh, what was in the cartoon now, always a yellowish, but this is almost more of a uh, crimson gold, if that makes sense. Uh, but hover chairs, Xavier, with his 90s stubble. Uh, crouching to his left is Beast. Then standing right behind him are Crystal, Quicksilver, and uh, Crystal's holding Luna. Scarlet Witch is on the other side of Crystal. Behind Scarlet Witch is Black Knight. And behind Quicksilver, clenching a fist and shield at his waist is Captain America. Then in the background, we have a burning cityscape, which we will find out is representative of Genosha. So that's it's a, it's a pretty good cover. I mean, Epting is is, is kind of rocking and rolling here in 1993. He's been doing some good work on these, the main Avengers book. And his covers have, have been pretty decent as well. So... What happens in part one, Avengers 368? All right. So Cortez, recently ousted from the Acolytes by Exodus, has kidnapped Luna, Quicksilver and Crystal's daughter, and thus Magneto's granddaughter, so I'm giving you the family tie there, um, and taken her to Genosha, where civil war has broken out between the mutates and the humans following Magneto's fatal attraction's worldwide EMP blast. So the U.S. government is mounting the is 
monitoring sorry, the Genosha situation, spearheaded by Guyrich, Cooper, and Nick Fury. Uh, Guyrich is to lead a diplomatic envoy, while Fury is to make sure the Avengers don't get involved, which Fury calls both Coast Avengers to Avengers HQ in Manhattan. Guyrich grabs U.S. agent, while Fury tells the rest to stand down. Cap kind of says, um... Why do we get involved? The Avengers almost never defend mutants. <laughs> Not really. But he does specifically call out like there's been incidents in Genosha before and the Avengers have not been involved. Uh, but Fury has intel that the Genosian human forces may strike at Magneto's relatives, including Crystal's daughter Luna, which makes them sound just terrible that they would strike at a kid, which obviously is what Cortez has done and is terrible. But to think that like a... A government-sponsored group would, anyway, it's just bad stuff. Um, so Crystal runs to check on Luna, who morphs into a mutate and explodes as a human bomb. At Xavier School, Guyrich and U.S. agent gather the envoy of Professor X and uh, Philip Moreau and Jen Ransom to head Genosha, to head to Genosha. Now, remember, of course, Moreau and Ransom are Genosians that came back to New York with the X-Men in various storylines, and uh, Moreau is the Gene Engineer's son, and then Ransom um, was also a high, prominent figure in Genosha. I think, or was a prominent mutate, maybe. <laughs> no, I'm trying to remember. Um, anyway, um, and Xavier introduces his plus one as the Bouncing Beast. Meanwhile, in the Danger Room, Iceman uses an ice mirror to shoot a laser at Rogue's ass. <laughs> Gambit says... That's my territory, Monami. And throws an ace of hearts to knock Iceman over. He's having romantic feelings, so he pulls the ace of hearts. <laughs> Rogue, um, you know, clears up that she is not actually territory. <laughs> I put, put in parentheses, we're still working on Gambit's quote-unquote charm. Um, as Professor X interrupts with a psychic message. The X-Men are to take the Blackburn and Stealth Mode and rendezvous with him and Beast and Genosha. Back in Avengers HQ, we find out, whoo, Crystal uses a Cyclone to funnel the blast and protect the Avengers, who of course are now going to defy Nick Fury and go straight to Genosha. But S.H.I.E.L.D. forces occupy their hangar. Meanwhile, on the news, Cortez announces that mutates have assassinated the human leaders of Genosha, and he is in charge of the new regime. And if the army does not surrender, he promises human genocide. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so this is actually a pretty compelling story to start off an event that follows up Fatal Attractions. We have, you know, direct plot points to what's going on. Um, we have civil war breaking out in Genosha in response to Magneto's actions as part of the event. Um, you know, EMP gave, you know, I guess just added some destabilization to a, an already um, precarious peace in the nation of Genosha. And, you know, there's one thing we find out that any kind of lightning disaster, natural or otherwise, and, or as we've seen in the world right now with the pandemic, like when you start adding those stressors, it really shows the true nature of different situations, right? Um, you know, and we've seen that take different shapes in different points of history, right? Um, you know, kind of the the Nazis uh, helping to unify. 
you know, people across multiple countries to, to try to defeat evil. Um, you know, the unity of our country here in America after 9-11, but also the, the way the pandemic, and kind of contrary to that, has really, I would say, in, in a lot of ways, sharpened division. And I'm not trying to get political, right? That's not my point here. My point is to say, though, that big events, big happenings in the world, when introduced into an environment really shine a spotlight or push that environment maybe in the direction it was natural to go when it breaks down some of those artificial barriers. So I think in real life we see that and I think in fiction it's interesting and we see that where kind of the loss of electricity and technology means that this kind of very fragile peace in Genosha between the mutates and the humans after um, um, extinction agenda, another X-Men event, um, you know, it really, it doesn't, it can't sustain the cracks, and it kind of breaks down. And then Cortez adds fuel to the fire, and is going to use, um, kind of rally the mutates behind Magneto, who he's still speaking on behalf of, and then is using Luna as kind of a bargaining chip, and a, a sign of, you know, kind of Magneto's lineage and legacy and kind of using that to gain validity um at first he'll kind of switch his purpose of that bargaining chip as the scenario evolves but i think originally his idea is i'm going to show up i'm going to use magneto's granddaughter to gain credibility i'm going to you know say i'm still in charge of the acolytes and i'm going to rise a mutate army against the oppressive humans and declare Genosha, my own mutate state or mutant state, and uh, you know we'll see that happen in and out of Genosha several times in X Men history. Anyway, I, I just think it's really interesting. And then of course Steve Epting's art is really good. Um, the acting is really good. There's some really good pages in particular, like the the danger room scene is fun. Um, let me let me actually get to it because it's it's a the fun little scene and you know I talked about the bouncing beast being uh, Xavier's plus one. Epting has him really jumping around quite a bit. Um, it's it's nice. It's just it's good art. Looks good. It's good writing. Um, you know I find Bob Harris's you know as as Grant, God bless him, uh, so affectionately calls this era. And he's not I don't think necessarily alone or unique, but you know he's a good friend and I like to talk to him so when he talks about this he always talks about the bomber jacket avengers and and kind of encapsulated or peaked with harris and epting as the team up um you know i have found it to be kind of inconsistent but the art is always pretty good and here it's good and here harris's writing is also really good and that's me not dogging on bob harris as a writer at all i feel like the run has been up and down with some pretty good ups and I actually found this one to be one of them. Um, so let's focus on Gambit for just a second because he definitely is a little... It's, it's weird, and we'll, we'll filter this through 1993, but he's kind of charming in a misogynistic way, or at least a way that we would call misogynistic now, and rightfully so. But I think the intent was... For him, you know, to show that he was a ladies' man and he was trying to charm the pants off a rogue. Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of it's kind of 
it's not like terrible, but it's not really endearing. <laughs> right. And I was, you know, it's one of those things that just doesn't hold up well. Right. Where he's like, oh, I think, you know, in his mind, he's just playing and flirting. Right. And I think that's what we're trying to portray here is just flirting with Rogue and, you know, kind of, you know, staking his claim against Iceman, who, of course, you know, wouldn't want nothing to do with her anyway. But, um, you know, and this comes off, though, as him trying to kind of stake a claim in a way that he's not really eligible to do because Rogue is not property territory. And I will say the the good part is that Rogue immediately stands up for herself as I like, hold on, sugar. I I know I know man's property and and that at least is good and decent. Um so anyway we're still working out <laughs> their relationship in a way that's kinda awkward and, and not as much fun to read in twenty twenty one. But um but it is there. And it is flirtatious, whether it's appropriately flirty or cringeworthy flirty, you know, goes with the times, but well, I guess one can argue. I think I probably would have been on Rogue's side the whole time, but, you know, what can you say? But anyway, I'm actually going to give, for an opening chapter, for starting the event, there's a lot here that's really fun and really good, and the art being really good. I'm going to give Avengers 368 four out of four aces. I really enjoyed this as a launch to this event. So that's going to take us to Blood Ties Part 2 in X-Men 26. So this one is Civil Disobedience by Fabian Nicieza, Andy Kubert, and Matt Ryan. Uh, Bill Oakley does the letters, Joe Roses does the colorist, and this time the editors are Bob Harris and Tom DeFalco. So Harris, while writing Avengers, is also editing X-Men, so obviously, you know, behooves him to, to put these two together. Um, the cover by Andy Kubert is almost really good. It's Captain America standing, yelling at the sky with his shield raised in the air in front of the X-Men logo. There's flames behind the logo. In front of Captain America, towards the reader, is Scarlet Witch, Rogue, and Cyclops. Um, the colors are kind of faded, and the inking is almost too light. And then Captain America is almost awesome, but he also looks kind of weird. So it, it's it's an almost really cool cover. <laughs> it's probably definitely the iconic image of this. Like I'm pretty sure it's on the graphic novel or, or trade or whatever you want to call it for this event. But um, anyway, yeah, it's not too bad. All right. So on the Blackbird, en route to Genosha, the X-Men also see Cortez's announcement. Quicksilver... Of course, it's furious that Cortez is using Luna as a prop, or even worse, a human shield for Magneto's wrath. But Gambit points out that they have an ace, uh-oh, ugh, up their sleeve, and that nobody knows Magneto is a vegetable except for them. Um, on Avalon, Colossus um, expresses his doubts to Exodus. Meanwhile, the Avengers fight their way through S.H.I.E.L.D. and Cap, Crystal, Wanda, Black Knight, War Machine, and Cersei board a Quinjet for Genosha. On Genosha, Xavier's party is intentionally ambushed by a bipartisan fighting party made up of mutates and humans. Xavier and Beast depart with them to try and fix Genosha, but U.S. Agent recovers from the gas with his new superpowers and stows away. 
Uh, after the X-Men land, they miss Wolverine, but are surrounded by Cortez as his team of the Unforgiven. Uh, Quicksilver accidentally confirms Magneto's state of mind, or lack thereof, giving Cortez extra bravado. Um, in Hammer Bay, which of course is the Genocean capital, the Avengers land, but so does Exodus! <laughs> Alright. So, um, some more pretty great art. Um, and still a pretty fun story. So, there is an interesting bit here. And the bit that has the most to do with the X-Men, probably, in the whole issue. Uh, so, first of all, when Gambit, of course, says they have an ace up their sleeve, he charges an ace of spades, though he doesn't seem to throw it, which is kind of weird, because it's going to blow up. So, um, I'm guessing he threw it away at some point off-panel. But, yeah, it seems like a waste of an energy blast to just make a bad pun. But, but yeah, when he says, we got an ace of our sleeve, he pulls out an ace of spades and lights it up, and that's that. <laughs> um... Yeah, so, so anyway, there it is. <laughs> you have it. Um, but also, in the other main kind of part of the X-Men is after they land, um, they talk about what Wolverine would do, that they wish he was there. And uh, even Gambit mentions that he respects and misses Wolverine, which kind of catches Rogue by surprise. Now, remember Rogue, not to the same level as, you know, your Jubilees or your Kitty Prides or other characters in the future, but, you know, there were a couple issues some time, uh, solo with Wolverine, kind of, you know, with Uncle Wolf, Uncle Logan, as we like to say, um, so, you know, she's definitely missing him, and, and feeling, you know, some of the loss of that, of, you know, his, his absence, but, um, even Cyclops is like, yeah, I mean, we, it'd be nice to have his, him on board for this mission, um, so let's kind of go over that page just a little bit. So, then, you know, they land, and they're getting out of the plane. Um, and, uh, you know, Gambit talks about, you know, their last time they were here, um, and Cyclops says, despite its history, the country was trying to make amends, you know, until what happened, but, you know, we're going to run, you know, this mission, and uh, Gambit's like, you tense girl. And Rogue says, first time I was here, I was with Wolvie. I was just wondering how he's doing. It's been over a week since he left, and we ain't heard from him yet. And Storm says, I'm trying to, I don't think I can do the animated deadpan voice. We must respect the decision Wolverine made, Rogue. That's terrible. <laughs> but Rogue says, I know, and I do, but we all miss him, Sherry. Gambit says, even you, Remy? Like having jambalaya without the spice, girl. <laughs> Which that comma is very important <laughs> because, I mean, I have jambalaya without a spice, girl, pretty often. <laughs> so tell me what you want, what you really, really want. What jambalaya? What do you mean? Um, yeah. Anyway, punctuation is important, kids. Um, and then Storm, of course, uh, continues, Cyclops, in honor of our departed friend. Perhaps if we were to take. The subtle and sneaky approach, as he might say. A green storm. We'd best be served to split up and... No, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Cyclops is more of a... A green storm. We'd best be served to split up into three units. You know, enable us to cover more ground. <laughs> oh, is my Cyclops bias showing? Sorry. Um, anyway, I thought it was a really nice scene. And, of course, this is a Wolverine podcast. 
And we're doing canvas gumbo, so I think focusing on, on those two characters in this scene. And of course, kind of Rogue comes in between them. She's the bridge between like Gambit and Wolverine, right? Well, we'll say. We'll pretend at least in this scene. Um, I thought it was a really nice scene. And not just because I love Wolverine. I thought it was just a really nice way of showing the X-Men are a family. And when something bad happens to one of them, they ache for them and hurt for them and miss them. And even though they all understand and allow Wolverine to kind of go off and figure this out by himself, I thought, arguably, I mean, they weren't really given a choice. He wrote a letter and disappeared in the middle of the night. But they haven't tried to chase him down. They've given him space. But they're still worried about him. That's kind of what, what a family does sometimes, right? I mean, whatever people are going through, you feel for them and you worry about them and you wish they were there. And you kind of sometimes pretend, like, what would he do if he was here? And I, I don't know. Just, it was a really touching scene. Um, I thought it was really well written despite my terrible uh, voices. Um, so, yeah. You know, overall, I mean, there's a lot of action. We get Exodus back as the true... You no, know, Cortez is the pretend legacy of Magneto. At least as far as the Acolytes go, Exodus is the legit... I mean, he's in charge of the Acolytes now. He's the ruler of Avalon. So for him to show up here, uh, we know... He's on a tra trajectory to butt heads with Cortez, like it's inevitable. Um, and so it adds a lot of suspense to this story. So, between the art and the writing, um, I'm still on board with Blood Ties. Like, these first two chapters come out of the gate really strong. So I'm going to give X-Men number 26 four out of four aces. I am, am still loving it so far. Alright, so let's go to the, uh, the weak sister of the Avengers line. This has not always been true, but lately uh, I've been reading them and it's been true. So Avengers West Coast 101 will be part three of five of Blood Ties, where Hawkeye wants to get down to cases, because Roy Thomas is still using expressions from the 60s. Um, so Roy Thomas is the writer, Dave Ross is the penciler, uh, Tom DeZone is the inker, Steve Dutro is the letterer, Bob Sharon is the colorist, and the editors are Nell Yamtov and Tom DeFalco. And this also gets a special thanks to Scott Lobdell. So he's also apparently helping, you know, kind of keep our plot dots connected. Um, the cover is by, and what did I say, David Ross? Yeah. And it is, so it's, it's got like a quarter stripe down the side under the letterbox. And it's got four floating heads, Spider-Woman, Gambit, Beast, and Captain America. And then the other three quarters is a white background with Exodus, eyes aglow, trying to choke out War Machine in a battle over the skies of Genosha. Um, it's a pretty meh cover. You know, I remember Ross, and maybe I remember incorrectly, having some decent issues of Alpha Flight. I have not really enjoyed his art since he moved to Avengers West Coast. Um, you know, we've covered that book across a couple of events, and I haven't necessarily loved it. And I've been reading the issues in between as well, just on my own, and it just hasn't hasn't been a book I've loved. But anyway, let's, let's talk about the issue. All right, so Hawkeye leads an Avengers contingency to the UN to challenge their decision on Genosha. 
So as some Avengers have gone to the country, the ones left behind are, are fighting the battle on the home front about what the right thing to do is. Uh, back in Genosha, War Machine and Exodus fight in the skies. Exodus eventually wins when is confronted then by the eternal Cersei. Uh, Xavier, Beast, and U.S. agent who revealed himself, I guess, off-panel, um, and is now working with Beast and Xavier, discover a mutate ghetto and are aghast. The X-Men fight the Unforgiven, where it turns out that Cortez was just a metamorph, so not the real Cortez. Uh, Cyclops says, Cortez, we're coming, and hell's coming with me! Um, Alright, so speaking of bad gambit puns, um, page 22, most of the way through the issue. Gambit's about, and they're fighting the Unforgiven, and Gambit says, uh, um, one of the bad guys, and of course they know the X-Men, they've read their files, they've done their homework, and says, this is no game, even though I hear they call you Gambit. And Gambit says, play if it keeps, is still playing, on me. So, Take a card, any card, and he lights up and ace of spades and throws it at the guy, blows it up in his chest with the ah, and the guy falls backwards. And you know the bad playing card puns continue. Um, though the art of Gambit jumping around is probably some of the best in the issue. Um, and Rogue, of course, saves Gambit, and uh, yeah. Though there's a very very awkward. This is a kid. I don't. I'm trying to remember 1993, and I'm pretty sure, from my memories, at least being here in Texas, maybe it was more of a joke <laughs> in in the north, in the northeast. I don't know. But there was some pretty like I. Right. So I grew up in a town called Garland, a city, really. Uh, it's a suburb of Dallas, but a pretty big one. At the time I was growing up. It was the 10th biggest city in Texas, you know. So it was one of the largest suburbs. And, you know, when I say suburb, it had a pretty wide diversity of of population, uh, both uh, economically and racially. And so with that um, came sometimes some tension. And I remember very specifically... um, at a very early age, forming my opinions about my kind of just intolerance for people who ran around with, like, Confederate flags and good old boys. And, I mean, by the time I was in high school, I was at least... Not to say I was perfect or that I had all the right thoughts or figured out my worldview completely, but I was I was pretty sick of that kind of thought of, of division and... And people talking about, um, you know, the South rising again and stuff like that would have been a pretty, a pretty big sore spot for me, um, even back then. And I would say even more so now. Um, my tolerance for that kind of thinking has only lessened as I've become a grumpy old man. Um, but anyway, uh, so there's a part where a rogue catches Gambit. Gambit gets thrown up in the air by a guy with like a mummy head. Um, and rogue catches him and, you know, Gambit, you know, thanks her. And rogue says, us southerners have to stick together, sugar. And Gambit goes, the South gonna rise again, huh? And rogue says, promises, promises. And again, I think it's just supposed to be flirtation, but 
I mean, there's a definite connotation to saying the South rising again. And it it really rubs me the wrong way now. And I think had I read it back then, I probably would have been upset that they had Gambit say that. I know they're both from the South. They are Southerners. And there's nothing... Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with being a Southerner. My wife's a Southerner. I have a great affection for that part of the country as far as just how beautiful it is and, you know certain parts of the culture and lifestyle that are very nostalgic for me, for my grandparents and stuff, and, and that's fine. But there are certain aspects of it that need to stay away forever, and some of those aspects are very closely tied to the idea of the South rising again. And that's, that's not about, well, let's have, you know, barbecues and, and make homemade pies and, you know, sit on the porch and you know, enjoy nature. <laughs> That's not what people mean when they say the South will rise again. They're talking about the stupid freaking Confederacy that needs to stay dead and dead forever. And so I, I have to think that Roy Thomas knew that. Like he had to have known. I don't. I just, I find it hard to believe that a guy who had been writing and you know, quote unquote, been in intellectual circles. I I know. Probably this time it would have been hard to have called comics necessarily intellectual, but, you know, especially like he was with those guys like in the 60s and stuff who were pretty liberal and progressive, it felt like, and it just, it's weird. It's a weird line to give them knowing, having to be self-aware there's a certain context that goes with that phrase, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get all into that, but liking Gambit and Rogue as much as I do. Just because they're from the South doesn't mean they're ignorant cusses. And doesn't mean that they're stupid and racist. So, I, w- I just wish you would have said, oh yeah, like apple pie. I, n- I don't know. I don't know what you say instead. And just, it bothered me. And I'm going to leave it at that. So, anyway, um, even for, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I feel like I remember it. It's been a while. That, that Ross had some good art on Alpha Flight. And I haven't enjoyed his Avengers West Coast as much. Even compared to other Avengers West Coast issues, though, this just seems really loose and not very good. It's actually pretty bad. And the story's just okay at best. Um, this is definitely the weak chapter, um, for sure. And I'm I'm giving it a pretty weak two out of four aces, and I feel like I'm being a little generous. So, next, let's move to part four, which is going to be Uncanny X-Men number 307. So this is Night and Fog, written by Scott Lobdell. I'm sorry, penciled by John Arena Jr. Inked by Dan Green. Chris Eliopoulos on the letters. Uh, Buccioletto and Summers on the colors, and of course Bob Harris and DeFalco as the editors. The cover is by John Romita Jr. I'm not sure if Green is credited with this one as well or not. There's not the normal signature. Normally, he, you know, he puts his name after, but not even the pencil signatures on here. But anyway, I would say if he did do it, sorry, because this cover is terrible. I mean, it's awful. Um, and it's and men have named him Exodus, and it's Exodus flying up from the bottom of the cover in a spray of yellow energy, and he looks gross. 
looks like um, I said a dumpster grandpa in my notes. I'm not sure what that means and why I wrote it at the time. But he looks like almost like an old Planet of the Apes ape. Like this really old. Uh, it's terrible. And the X-Men are around him in the background and they look equally terrible. Like it's it's a gross cover. It's it just looks kinda disgusting. Not like in a perverse way, just like ew. Like someone vomited on the comic book. Sorry, that sounds harsh. I really don't like this cover. Um Alright, so inside, uh, Genosha defends this mutate camp as trying to quarantine the mutate disease, which is still kind of unclear whether this is the same as a legacy virus or not. Um, you know, mutates are not traditional mutants, but, you know, they both kind of started at the same time. But they don't immediately, at least in this story, connect the dots to the legacy virus. But there is definitely a disease. And we've seen it in a couple of previous issues uh, that is affecting the Genosha mutates. We saw it in some X-Factor issues before Fatal Attractions. Um, so that's still going on. Um, and the Genoshans saying, well, we have to put them in this ghetto because we have to quarantine them so it doesn't spread to the humans because they don't know that it's just mutates. They just know that... The disease is pretty bad. It's a, it's a pandemic, and they're doing what they think is smart and prudent. Obviously, it doesn't hold ground with the X-Men, and, and they're not not too fussed about the logic there. Um, so Cersei and Exodus continue to battle in the skies above Hammer Bay, unleashing incredible destructive energy and collateral damage. Uh, back home, the Avengers officially separate from the UN or any government sponsorship and say they're just going to get back to uh, doing what's right, regardless. Uh, back in Hammer Bay, Black Knight pulls Cersei out of the fight before they inadvertently destroy the whole city. Uh, looking for Luna, Quicksilver and Jean bump into Crystal and Wanda. Then Cortez, with Luna, bumps into them. Then Exodus bumps into all of them. Cortez offers to return Luna if the heroes will kill Exodus. He's kind of scared of Exodus, and... Basically says, okay, I don't want to die, so if you guys will help me and kill Exodus, I'll give you back your daughter. That's a good trade, right? Um, alright. So the story is not bad. It's not as good as the first two chapters, but it's not bad. Alright, I said I had some feelings on this issue. I really do not like this version of John Romita Jr. I feel like this art is pretty bad. And... You know, it's really funny. My my experience with JR Squared is very interesting because my first real exposure to him, like in real time, was Punisher Warzone. And while I thought, okay, it's kind of a weird kind of geometric art style, because it was a it was a big bulky Punisher, right? Who was different obviously than the Jim Lee version that I was accustomed to. Um but, you know, in Gru, I mean, I liked it, and I, I liked his art in that series, even though it was very different. And I thought, okay, this guy's pretty cool. And then, as he came over to Uncanny X-Men, I quickly fell out of love with him and decided he was an artist I didn't really like. And it wasn't until getting back into comics, again, after college, and reading some of his amazing Spider-Man stuff, I kind of started coming back around. And I've been up and down on him since. Okay? But, you know, a lot of artists from the 80s and 90s 
by the time you get to the 2000s. Sometimes they really hold up well, and sometimes it's not as much. And sometimes, like with John Ramey Jr., it's a mixture, right? Um, he's had some stuff that's been really good, and some stuff that's been not so good. And even sometimes, like on the same kind of stretch, like I remember I really enjoyed his Superman work uh, in the New 52 version, but really did not like his most recent work on Action Comics on the Bendis run. I can't really tell you exactly what was so different. I just sometimes he's a lot cleaner. I like him a lot, and sometimes not so much. Um, anyway, as I've been doing my flashback read-alongs, or even, even before then, so when I started buying X-Men back issues, when I got back into collecting um, after college, I started filling in uh, my Uncanny run, and my X-Men run, and discovered, hey, he did some really cool stuff on the X-Men in the 80s. And then more recently, reading along with the flashbacks, I absolutely adore and cherish the stuff he did on Daredevil. Like, love it to pieces. And so I kind of thought, maybe I just got him wrong. Maybe when I get back to that 90s X-Men stuff, that kind of honestly helped push me... It helps solidify my decision to quit collecting comics. I, that sounds terrible. I'm not hanging that all on him, but it was a, it was a factor. I was I was starting to lose interest. I was starting to spend my money in other places, and that was kind of the thing that pushed me over the edge. Was I wasn't enjoying the art in Uncanny. I really thought reading all the '80s stuff, especially this time around, through for the podcast. Huh, I bet, by the, I bet when I get to the 90s, I'm going to feel really differently and realize that I, I was a fool. And I just, I missed the brilliance and the glory that was John Romita Jr. And I, I was mad at him in 1993 for no reason. Well, I was wrong. I don't really like, and again, it's hard to say exactly what the difference is. I don't know if he's going too fast. I don't think it's Dan Green's fault, because Dan Green's a very good inker most of the time. Sorry, Dan Green! Um, maybe they're not the best combination. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's extra sloppy, it feels like. And there's always an kind of an edge. I'm going to say he's kind of a geometric artist, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's the right artistic way to say how he draws, but I've kind of always felt that way. Like, it's kind of angular, right? Um, and maybe... So there's a certain stylized... Um, not distortion, but... Um, exaggeration of, of things. It's not, it's, not, it's not a realistic art style. It's a, comic, it's a very comic book art style. And... I don't know. Sometimes it really works, but this is just, it's, it's messy and and dirty, and I don't really like it. So, um, this is one of the last Uncanny issues I bought in real time. Uh, we're, we're getting real close to where I, I jumped ship completely um, on X-Men. In fact, I would say at this point, I was probably already hit and miss and not getting every issue. Um, not working as hard to get to the comic shop with my lawnmower money on my bike. And, um, yeah, so, anyway, take that for what you will. I know some people look on this era very fondly, and I, I don't want to disparage that at all. I just, even, I didn't like it back then, I don't really like it that much now. Um, 
So, I don't know. We'll see. I will say, I'm loving Andy Kubert's X-Men run right now just as much as I remember. So, I don't think it's like a... It's not shitting on 90s art. It's just... And like I said, the stuff he did right before this, and even his first couple issues on Uncanny, like 300, and when we talked about that with the guys from Homo Superior, um, I was pretty on board, and was even kind of saying some of the same stuff, like maybe I was wrong about my my impression, sorry, of of early 90s John Romita Jr., but by this point, I don't know, uh, maybe just trying something different stylistically, trying to not just be what he's been. I mean, artists do that, right? Like they kind of go through phases where they evolve. And sometimes that evolution is rough. Sometimes it's really smooth. <laughs> anyway, I guess all that to say, I didn't really like this issue that much overall, but the story was okay. So I'm still going to give it kind of just your middle of the road for Gambit Gumbo, uh, two out of four aces. So that's going to take us to our conclusion which is Blood Ties Part 5 of 5 um, and Avengers 369, which is called Of Kith and Ken, and it's written again by Bob Harris. Uh, Steve Epting and John, sorry, Jan Jacima are the pencilers. Tom Palmer does the inkers. Mike Rockwitz the colors. Bill Oakley the letters. Ralph Macchio and Tom DeFalco are the editors. And the cover, technically by Epting, but all embossed in foil, or chrome, maybe? I don't, can't always remember which is which. But it's Exodus in a Christ pose, and Quicksilver and Crystal holding hands, kneeling in front of him. I mean, it's fine. It's hard to tell what's going on sometimes with the chrome, foil, chrome, whatever. Um, Alright, so in our last chapter... Exodus kill Cortez and takes Luna, which I did not see coming. Um, Exodus covers Genosha in an energy bubble. The X-Men and Avengers agree to team up, saving humans and mutants alike. On a helicarrier, Vision helps S.H.I.E.L.D. realize that the bubble is shrinking to crush Genosha like a closing fist. Exodus um, casts a mental message to the mutates Kill the humans, or I will allow the bubble to crush you all. Uh, the A plus X team split half to quell the riots and half to take down Exodus. Xavier, knowing it will not be enough, mind blasts Exodus to distract him just enough for Black Knight to stab him with his magic energy sword and save Luna. As Exodus falls, so does the bubble. Xavier preaches to the crowds. Exodus wakes up. Swears this is only the beginning. You've not seen the last of me, X-Men and Avengers. And makes like his namesake and exits out of there. Or makes an exodus out. <laughs> um, Xavier questions whether he should come out publicly as a mutant. And uh, then we just kind of fizzle to the end. <laughs> so, as far as Gambit in this story, uh, his main... Besides just fighting and throwing cards, his main personality trait is to hit on Cersei more than once, even though he's actively pursuing Rogue. And almost, Harris almost writes him as, a, oh, he just can't help himself. He's just a big horn dog. That's all he is. Because that's what, I mean, that's what Cajuns are, right? <laughs> just big, uncontrolled, hormonal horn dogs. It's, it's a bad stereotype. You know, he writes him 
Harris and and actually, you know, that's funny. On the podcast, we've experienced often, not always, there have been some really good ones, but often Wolverine's guest appearances are the one-dimensional version of Wolverine that's just gruff and tough and stabby. And there's really nothing else to him, right? All the kind of depth and stuff that Claremont and other X-Men writers try to put into him is usually, like I said, not always, there's exceptions, but is usually lost in translation, and especially in this era of guest appearances. And I'm finding the same thing to be true of Gambit. Any kind of depth, or especially like the really good stuff we just got in his miniseries, none of that even bothers to show up when he's in another team's book. He's just kind of a stereotypical dirty Frenchman who, you know, is just thinking with his crotch, hitting on everything that moves, kind of saying disgusting things that are supposed to be flirty, and that's just kind of what he is in his guest appearances at this time. And, and smoking, obviously, always smoking a cigarette. And apparently making bad uh, playing card puns. And that's kind of the, the sum total of what he does um, in guest appearances, besides people drawing him jumping around with his flying kicks and, and his trench coat waving in the wind behind him. Um, so as far as um, what we have here, the story catches back up, but unfortunately the art does not as much even with emptying back for part of it. Um, I've not been super high on Jan Drusima. Um I, I hate that that is the case, because I think it's cool to see we don't have a lot of female artists at this time. Excuse me. Um, I don't know. She's just kind of a standard 90s proto-image. I, know she, I don't think she does anything in image, but just kind of that not quite aping the 90s superstars art style that just is kind of the Marvel, I guess would be the Marvel house style at this time. Um, so, I mean, it, it's an okay conclusion. Um, some of the characters are kind of wishy-washy. Gambit comes off kind of like a, a, a dick. Um, yeah, I don't know, even in the good stories, like his miniseries, they like go out of this way, you know, like, oh, well, he flirts with this character, and he's torn about his ex-wife, and he has an ex-lover that he kisses, and it's just, all right. I know we're prolonging, like, the, what the fans are clamoring for with Rogue and Gambit being together, and we're dragging that out because we don't want to satisfy the readers too soon, and we need the drama of... You know, will they, won't they? I get all that, but it doesn't mean he has to be an ass on the side. So, anyway, I know it's supposed to be charming and bad boy, and maybe I've just, I've never been or particularly related to bad boys, so it doesn't speak a whole lot to me, even in the 90s sense. Um, but yeah, I'm going to give, you know, Avengers 369, three out of four aces, and I think the event as a whole would be three out of four. I guess I knew the math real fast, so we have eight. Plus 4 is 12, plus 15 divided by 5 is exactly 3 out of 4 aces is the average score. <laughs> so there you go. Math, people. Uh, math on this podcast is, of course, sponsored by John Wilson. So, John, thanks for teaching math. <laughs> um, all right. So that is Blood Ties. All in all, not a bad event. Started off really strong. Sank like a torpedo in the middle and did his best to recover. I really think had Epting drawn the final entry by himself, 
probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. Um, I feel like even the this, this stuff he did looked a little like, oh, I got a deadline, which happens. Um, but then combining it with uh, Jan, just seeing his art, just didn't really do it for me. So, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about a bonus comic. And that bonus comic, if I can pull it up on Marvel Unlimited, because I do not have this one, is Spider-Man The Mutant Agenda number one. And I'm trying to pull it up, and I'm stalling a little bit while we're pulling it up. And come on, Marvel Unlimited, you... Man, I've said this before, and I don't mean to beat a dead horse or, or be too repetitive. I love Marvel Unlimited, the subscription service. I kind of hate Marvel Unlimited, the iPhone app. Um, I have to relaunch it or restart it, and even sometimes reinstall it pretty frequently to get it to work and to pull up comics. So, so I highly encourage... I mean, I know some people complain that, like, not everything's on there, but they're always adding more and more. I think that is, is slowly but surely fixing itself. But the problems with the app um, are not good. But anyway, Spider-Man, The Mutant Agenda... Well, now it's coming up, but I can't turn pages. <sighs> Thanks. Okay, let me try to close it and open it one more time. Third time is the charm, is it not? That's what they say. They, being the people who invented Marvel Unlimited. <laughs> they invented that phrase, third time is the charm, talking about their app. Is it going to work? Is it going to work? Damn you. Oh, there we, here we go. All right. All right, so this is written by Stephen Grant. Penciled by Scott Collins, inked by Sam De La Rosa, letters by Steve Dutro, colors by John Calise, uh, edited by Danny Fingeroth and Tom DeFalco. And on the cover by Scott Collins, we have Beast and Spider-Man lurging at the cover, at the reader, with the shadow of a hobgoblin in front, and then in blue icy silhouette, Archangel, Rogue, Bishop, and Gambit's heads. It's actually a pretty good cover. I like Scott Collins' Beast, as we'll find out in this issue. And Spider-Man as well. Um, Alright, so in this one, basically, following an X-Men Danger Room sesh, Beast goes incognito to the Brand Corporation because uh, they have a convention on mutation. Now, remember, that's where Beast turned into Grey Beast the first time, way back in the 70s. Um... So afraid, but he's afraid that they uh, stole his research, which he thought he had destroyed, because he's studying mutations, and now they're talking about it, so it must be the same thing. Um, Peter Parker is there as a student. Hobgoblin attacks the main speaker, but Beast and Spidey intervene and save the day. Um, so really, Gambit and Rogue are with Bishop and Beast in the Danger Room session, and that's kind of they, they jump around a little bit do some stuff, and then that's really it. Gamma's in there like two pages. I'm barely in there. But didn't want to talk about it. Um, I would say overall, Scott Collins' art, it doesn't look like classic Scott Collins yet. Um, I don't know. That, I don't think this is first stuff, but it's pretty early in his career. Um, but yeah. Um, I feel like the art's pretty good. I really enjoy Spider-Man. I enjoy his Beast. Some of his Hobgoblin looks pretty great. Um, there is kind of a quasi-Wolverine appearance when Beast gets to the convention 
there's a, a sculpture of the X-Men, um, a mutation, um, force without control, question mark, and it's a sculpture of Cyclops, Storm, and Wolverine um, on, a, on a giant rock, which looks fine. So, I mean, it's actually a pretty good story. Um, I will tweet about it, because I haven't read the other issues, yet, which normally... Even if our character of interest is not in the whole story, I'll usually read it and kind of cap it off for you guys, but I haven't read it all yet. So, on the tweet thread for this episode, I will, of course, post some stuff for this first issue, and then I will also finish out the series. It's four, no, I think it's three issues. Um, now, I don't know, Marvel and Limited did include, there's a zero issue, which at the time when this came out, you would buy it, and you were supposed to clip out, so the story crossed over with the newspaper strip, the Spider-Man strip in the paper, uh, by Lee and his brother, Larry Lieber. Um, and the idea was, if you cut it out every week, you could buy this, like, collector's book, and it had places for you to glue, like, get a glue stick and glue all the strips into the book, and you can read it like an actual comic book composed of all these strips. Now, Marvel Unlimited put together a digital version. It's pretty long. And I kind of glanced through it. I may or may not have time or make time to read it, but um, it is there. Um, so, I'm probably at least, at least like, flip through it, but it's pretty long. And I'm pretty crunched for reading time right now. My reading budget is getting tight. Um, with new books and old books and everything in between and my different reading projects. I'm just not sure I want to bite off that one, but we'll see. Um, but I'll definitely do the other issues of the main event, and we'll tweet about them in the thread for the episode. So, anyway, that's the mutant... Oh, uh, I gave it three out of four aces. This first issue. If I didn't say that already, I can't remember. Uh, check the tapes. Okay, can't. Um, anyway... That's pretty much the episode. So Blood Ties was fairly good. And the little bonus mutant agenda was pretty good. So some not bad comics for this episode. So next up, of course, will be new comics. Um, I will cover like the new Wolverine and stuff. And then, of course, we'll eventually... We'll probably get back with the Excalibros when Inferno number one comes out. Whatever week that is... We'll probably record that weekend, catch up on everything. And then as far as flashbacks, the next episode before we get back to Wolverine and his first adventure with Bone Claws, we will catch up with following up on the Sabretooth Mini, which will also involve Gambit. So Sabretooth and Gambit together, or at least in the same comics, um, as Sabretooth leaves his miniseries and comes to the mansion. So... That's all pretty fun, and will keep me pretty busy, and I'll try to get things back on track. I, I got a little delayed because of having family in town for the holiday weekend. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll get things back on track. So, as always, uh, for the podcast that goes snit, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at snitcast. Show notes and stuff for snitcast.podbean.com. And as always, um, please stay safe, stay well, and until next time, hugs and snicks. All right, well, bye-bye. And snacked.